again, everyone. Welcome to the Red and White Authority. I'm Art Regner. This is episode 144. And as always, the Red and White Authority is presented by Labatt Blue. It is the official Canadian beer of the Detroit Red Wings, whether it's winter, spring, summer, or fall. It's always good to end your day with a nice, cold, frothy Labatt Blue. But we do ask that you drink our premium beer responsibly. And uh, today, a little bit different uh, Red and White Authority uh, with the uh, COVID-19 outbreak. We are uh, uh, going to talk to a gentleman that I've wanted to talk to uh, for a long time. I've known him a long time. He is the Red Wings chief physician, as I should say, the head team physician, and also the medical director of the emergency department at Henry Ford Macomb. That is Dr. Anthony Colucci and his senior colleague, Dr. John Bauer, uh, joins us. These are guys that are in the front line and uh, uh, see it as ER doctors. And uh, without further ado, uh, let's bring them in. Uh, uh, Dr. Colucci, Dr. Bauer, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Art. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks. And, you know, I'm going to call you Dr. Bauer and Dr. Colucci just so the audience knows which one of you is which. And uh, occasionally I'm probably going to end up calling you Tony, Tony. So, uh, okay. but. Uh, <laughs> That's but fine. <laughs> but, but with that said, I guess my first question, and certainly I'm been bombarded like everybody else. I've been at home for a long, long time. Uh, I told Dr. Colucci that uh, the Red Wings had played on a Friday uh, and Saturday and sandwiched in between was the the game the Utah Jazz played the Pistons. Uh, two players for the Jazz uh, tested positive. That's when the whole sports thing started. But I wonder when this when coronavirus was first heard of or when it was beginning in Asia and Europe, you gentlemen are are mired in uh, in your jobs in the ER and all that. How did were you aware of this? Did you see it coming, or was this kind of sprung on all of us almost out of nowhere? Well, I think it came uh, like I think it became aware to our department, and I mean we heard muddlings of it, but it's really at the beginning of March is when we started. Uh, I can tell you March 9th and 10th were the two cases in particular that uh, we we got them into our department and that's when everything just started just it just took off from you know all the um, different criteria and policies and from that was the middle of the week 9-10 and we had a couple of our colleagues that were you know no mask no gowns uh, basically taking care of these people and then over the weekend and then Monday, we were up and running with the tent. So, I mean, it was a matter of four or five days that it kind of, uh, in my perspective, sprung on me. I don't know if uh, Dr. Bauer's got a different perspective. No, I, I think fairly similarly, Tony. We all had heard about this. We, you know, some of us more than others, some of us probably spend a little more time uh, looking at things outside of the direct field that we're doing. Uh, but certainly I was aware and talking about this with colleagues, but through February, even though there were discussions and predictions that were starting to come out, we had not seen it at our particular facility. So as Tony suggested it, it came on fairly rapidly, even though we had heard that was an issue on the West Coast and whatnot. When you hear something like this, can you pre-prepare for it or does, is it just you have to react as it's going on because 
you're unsure, and again, uh, uh, layman here, that you're unsure exactly what you're dealing with, although you might be somewhat familiar with a virus, certainly, but a, a coronavirus. Yeah, and they, they gave the name the name of it Novel, which is means new. And so even though there has been other coronaviruses, the SARS, MERS, and then this one, um, they behave differently. And, and it's how they handle it differently. And, th and then again, this has been new, and I think that it was um, kind of through what we're reading and seeing that it was sprung on us and it wasn't abated from the onset. And I think uh, as far as the transparency of what was going on, delayed everybody's reactions as opposed to in past when we've had epidemics and pandemics uh, I think we had an early jump on it to be able to um, handle those situations a little bit better than what's going on now so again is there any way to prepare I guess if you were given a couple of months to just to get the PPEs in place to get the uh, your whole ER set up to where do you cohort these people but it was Again, in my perspective, it was thrust upon us immediately from our cases. It's not like, hey, we're sending you 10 cases of COVID. I mean, they showed up, and, and as you know, the symptoms and the, the, the variance of people's presentation takes you off guard. I mean, you're having people, and that's probably the biggest, one of the biggest thing is the, for transmission is that there's a lot of people with the virus in them that are walking around asymptomatic and carrying it. So... Yeah, and, and I'm going to chime in a little bit too, Tony. Sure. Um, our, we, we certainly, as a medical community, have a certain level of preparedness for viral syndromes and respiratory syndromes. What I think was unique or is unique about this is, first of all, this particular entity has a very um, unique presentation in that it seriously affects seriously like death and ventilators seriously affects a small percentage of the population and so i think the two issues with this at least from my perspective have been you know i've been doing this for 32 years and have been through 30 flu season and you know tens and tens of thousands of flu deaths every year i have never worn a mask in the emergency department wow and so one of the things that has this unique about this is that with the the estimates of millions of people dying there was an immediate rush for self-protection and then the second piece is the ventilators and and there's been so much talk about this i think two months ago i don't think uh 30 percent of the population really understood what a ventilator is so the the stress that this disease put on our ventilator capacity and at macomb we were no, never overwhelmed but we we kind of walked over the edge and looked down and then the yeah. the need for personal protective equipment i think those are the two unique things as an emergency physician that have impacted us day to day wouldn't you say that tony yeah the the two the the numbers that we followed are so mm -hmm. well, let me just let me just piggyback on a john about <laughs> so john and i had been doing er medicine for 30 plus years and we joked about it <laughs> when we got to work, we're wiping down our keyboards and mouses. And we both said, we've never done this in 30 years, wiping down our keyboards with antiviral wipes and our little <laughs> mouses. I said, we've never done it in 30 years of practicing and who knows what we've been exposed to uh, over all the years. But um, the numbers that we really looked at, it's ICU beds as well is included in that ventilators. 
And those are two important numbers with, we did get down a couple of weeks ago, John and I were talking yesterday, that our ICU beds, we were actually using, because everybody's canceled elective surgeries just because of this influx of these cases of where we were going to put them. And like John said, even though it feels and is perceived as a large amount, um, there is a, a, a smaller percentage of these. There's a certain percentage of these that do get severe illness, and they require a ventilator and an ICU admission. And those are the numbers that the, when they're critically ill, I mean, they're on the verge of uh, mortality, that we are really concerned about what's our status. In our bed, we did get down to, we had to actually move some of our ICUs because we saturated both our ICU units. We had to use the ambulatory surgery center as an ICU makeshift. And our ventilators, we have 70 available at house and we got down to eight. We got down to single digit. And so, like John said, we were looking over the edge, so to speak, and it got a little scary. And then that's and then that was the week right before everybody was talking about, okay, now we're gonna get this real super bad week coming up. And I said, oh, if we get this real super bad week, um, we're in trouble because we're, we're right down to the bare minimum. We're already pushed over into utilizing the ambulatory surgery for ICU beds, and we're down to single-digit ventilators. But it actually, we that was kind of where we kind of peaked, and the next week wasn't as bad as everybody anticipated. And <clears throat> so it was, those are the very important numbers that we looked at. And there were a couple of our hospitals in our system in Henry Ford that they were saturated. They had nowhere else to put ICU beds, so they had to transport transfer people either to, I think, University of Michigan picked up a couple. We had to take a couple. Downtown was hurt as well as far as their uh, overwhelmed status. But the other the other business units in Henry Ford system was able to uh, dodge a bullet, so to speak, and manage internally what they had. So, but it, it got it got down pretty low. You can imagine seven events in house, and we got down to eight. Well, you know, Tony, I, you know, I told you this, and uh, uh, John, I, I, I want to bring you, both of you in on this, because, Tony, I saw you on Channel 4. I believe Paula Tutman did a report where you were on and you were talking about being low on masks and being low uh, uh, on, on gloves. Um, was it the overwhelming response to people providing you with this uh, that happened, or was it, it it wasn't, I guess, quite as bad as original estimates where everything kind of settled down for you. You went, you were down to eight ventilators, as you said, but then you, and then you figure, oh my gosh, next week is supposed to be the worst week, and it wasn't quite as bad. How did that all play out? Because I know that several of uh, the, the uh, uh, healthcare professionals, as you were, 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 were on television, and we're talking about it, and we're letting people know that we are in a crisis situation, we need things. Um, I, I guess what I'm trying to ask in a roundabout way, uh, did uh, you know society rally behind you gentlemen to make sure that you had everything you needed in order to fight this pandemic? Yeah, I think the, uh, you know, the response we had, I've been sitting on incident command meetings twice a day, seven days a week from the get-go, and then an additional system-wide ER meeting in the morning. And PPEs was, like John alluded to, is another deficiency just for the fact that it wasn't only the frontline providers that were gowning and masking. Then the, the fear came into everybody from, 
you know, EVS changing the trash can to somebody having to go get a signature. So you're having all these uh, other people that any form of a contact or walking into a room, they were donning and doffing of this PPE, which is putting on and taking off this equipment. And it might have been just a couple of seconds. Well, that becomes, there's a, there's a part of that, even though it's, I understand it, part of that's being wasteful. Like maybe somebody's double masking, they don't really need to. Somebody putting a gown on, they really didn't need to. But you're utilizing all this PPE. When, and, and in these incident commands, we're coming up with, like you said, plan A, plan B, and plan C. So when we were coming up on this disaster week, when we thought we were running really close, looking over the edge, we had to come up with, well, one, when we run out of ICU beds in the ASC, now what do we do? Now where do we? So we're preparing like mock ICUs. We're, we're pretending that we're in that situation. And with the PPEs, like I, uh, on the, with Paula Tutman, we did get down low and then reaching out to all these other vendors and resources. And usually it was the, the reaching out. The community was incredible as far as reaching out, either providing the equipment itself or financial support to do what we needed to do to get them. Um, they've been, uh, the community has been resilient, resourceful, and philanthropic. It's been incredible, uh, the American spirit from what I've seen with this, that everybody's rallied. Even throughout the fear and everything, there's been a great uh, embracing by the community to help out. John, I don't know if you've... Yeah, so Tony, our Tony's a, a little more in tune to the behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. um, as uh, From my standpoint... Never did I not have an N95 mask, um, never had an issue with gloves or gowns. So whatever was happening to the end user, you know, the guy seeing the patient in the ED, uh, I never felt that. So it probably speaks to all the work that Tony just discussed. Well, let me, uh, uh, John, let me talk to you, Dr. John Bauer. Uh, let me talk to you as far as being in the ER. What was it like for you? Were you putting in these long hours? Was it just a nonstop of people coming in? Plus, I would imagine, even though we are in the middle of a pandemic, you probably had other people that were injuring themselves or accidents or whatever coming in there, too. Was it a chaotic scene? How did you handle that? If you can describe what you've been going through, I think, uh, I, I think the people would really like to hear that. And our, we're practicing in Macomb County. So Macomb County has the third most cases and deaths in Michigan. And we're one of three of the three big hospitals that practice in Macomb County. Um, so I think my experience is probably somewhere above average as far as severity. We're not New York. We're not Detroit. So as I said, this particular disease um, affected a, a small percentage of the patient population, the elderly and the people under 50 with comorbidities. When I say comorbidities, high blood pressure and heart disease, interestingly, were the two biggest issues. Wow. So when this first started, what I'll tell you, Art, is that for the three months prior to the start of this, we were in full-blown flu season. Um, we had 40 patients sitting in our ED, waiting for a bed upstairs. The house was filled. We couldn't move people. You know, we were stretched at, to the limit. And so we transitioned into these COVID patients. 
And what happened is it was it's very fascinating. And to look at our data, it's very fascinating. What happened was the word went out that this thing existed. Estimates of two million deaths went out. And very around that same time, the actual patients started coming in. So what we experienced in the ED was a simultaneous influx of, you know, five, 10 critically ill patients that we needed to PPE and put on ventilators. So serious stuff. Simultaneously, the, the populace started to say, the ED is like, like ground zero. I don't want to go to the ED. So as we started to get the influx of these critical COVID patients, and this is mid-March, we saw our overall patient population going down. And, and one thing that's happening now is that, so while it was happening, Art, we were busy. We were busy managing these critically ill patients as our overall volume in the ED went down. And so it was hectic, but it was a focus hectic. And what's happened over the last month is a real change in our dynamic. So there is no question, and I think I, I'm echoing, I, I, I can talk data, but also the, the gestalt of what we're experiencing in the emergency department is that the COVID cases are on the downward trend. We're not seeing as many sick patients. There aren't as many of them. But what has happened, and this is, this is kind of a, 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 a dirty secret in, in the emergency departments across the United States are now seeing half the patients that we typically do. The populace has become so frightened of the emergency department, and I shouldn't say it like that, but I have no other explanation. We're seeing about half the patients today that we would have seen on April 19th last year. Wow. Yeah, so, so yeah. there's a national, the American College of Emergency Physicians did a, uh, like like data collecting, and they looked at the, across the nation and adult emergency departments. There's a 50% drop in volume, and there's a 77% drop in pediatric designated ERs. So it's 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 impacted nationally. So so our we had a we had a, Tony maybe two three weeks of just focused care on 10 five, 15 of these really sick patients that really occupied, you know, the, the, the ED physicians that were manning that area of the ED. But then we saw this sort of gradual and really a precipitous drop, Tony, wouldn't you say the first week of April? Yes. Yes. So now it was, it was Harry managing those sick patients for a short period of time. And I know other hospitals are having different experiences, but the, the gist of this, like across the Henry Ford system, even our facility in Detroit and Jackson, ER volume's down 50% at this point. Now, is, is, it, is it down because of social distancing? I think people are, are, and I think part of the reason is, is I would assume people think, man, I'm not feeling well, maybe I should go to the emergency room, but I don't have the symptoms of, uh, of COVID-19, so I, I'm, just gonna, uh, I'm just going to lay back. Is it is it dropping because 
pe there are less people getting sick or people are just afraid to go outside. I know that kind of sounds crazy, but um, the numbers seem to be dropping. We heard the flat curve. I know I still think Michigan has almost 37,000 cases uh, a state. The, the country is almost at 700,000. The last ones that I looked at, obviously deaths are uh, uh, in Michigan. I think it's about 3,700 or so. The, the latest that I saw, I, I, I mean, I know it's serious. I really know that it's serious. Uh, do you think that the measures that we're taking in place, such as social distancing, are working? Or is it more people are just afraid to come outside? I know it's kind of weird, but I, I don't know how how to state it, really. I, th I think it's a uh, combination of mo all those factors. Uh, one of them is the social distancing that they're, they're obeying the rules and staying in and not going. Um, I think there is a, because at the first, at the first onset this thing, when we set up the tent, we had a line down back across the road, maybe 20, 20, 30 cars deep, waiting to come through our COVID tent to get tested. So they were coming out of the house, so that addresses that, but they were af afraid. And then I think it, to the point now, even John can give one of his own anecdotal stories that we just had a 57-year-old gentleman that paced around his house at 4 o'clock in the morning with an indigestion type of feeling that he was kind of battling for two days and he didn't want to come to the ER and he, he collapsed at this house and never regained, uh, regained consciousness again. He passed away. Oh, my so I gosh. Think we're, we're, yeah, we're doing a... There's that fear that's overbearing, and John, you give give your own a little story because it's the same thing we're going through. Yeah. So, our, yeah, certainly talking about anecdotal things, but a family member belly pain called me on the weekend, asked my advice. I said maybe you could do this or this at home. She said, "No, it's pretty bad. I'm going to go to the hospital." So the the patient went to the hospital and was greeted by somebody in a mask and a visor and a gown, and this person said, you know what, I'm just going to deal with my pain at home. Ended up having to go back two days later, had a boulder-sized kidney stone that uh, was pretty significant. I've had patients in the ED that um, will come in with chest pain and have a story that is classic heart pain, but they say, doc, the people in the two rooms next to me are coughing. I don't want to stay here. So I can't, those are anecdotes, so I hate to uh, right. Uh, uh, you know, those that's anecdotal. I, but having said that, I don't know, Art. I just know that um, it it has really impacted our our ED volume, and yeah, you know, we'll and see think, what happens. And I think the community too, like you said, part of the social distancing, less people driving, less car accidents, less robberies, less murders, less assaults. Except what we're hearing on the back end, but they're not coming here as domestic violence, child abuse. I mean, all those things are escalating. The behavioral, uh, even though they're saying it's going up with uh, suicides and that, we're not seeing that in, in adjusting the volume, but it's they're, they're reporting that it's out there. So all these different changes, it's almost like they're all connected like silos, um, but it definitely impacts overall volume, but you can see it and you can section it off of, there's not one in particular reason, but they're all connected to cause it. When you look at this, and, and I'm kind of curious, you know, the stats that we hear, there's people listening out here saying, wow, okay, well, maybe emergency room, at least in Macomb here, uh, you know, they can accept patients or, or, or volume is down. What should 
someone who believes they, what are the real symptoms? If, if there's people listening out there that aren't feeling well, they think I may have it, I might be in a high risk category, but they're apprehensive to even leave their house. What should they be looking for when it's time to, you know, get the husband or wife or your significant other or a neighbor or somebody and drive you to the hospital? Well, my I'll, feeling I'll, is I'll that... go first, Tony. The, okay. Yeah. First of all, a number of the symptoms of COVID are very similar to other respiratory viruses. The, the concerning signs with COVID are chest pain, shortness of breath, um, change in what we call mental status, patients that are becoming confused. Sometimes what COVID does, what, what really kills people, not what really, what kills people with COVID is they develop this pneumonia picture in their lungs and it, severely impacts the body's ability to take oxygen out of the air and put it in the body. So patients that their blood oxygen level is low, they can start acting funny, confused, slow, etc. So I would say that the change in behavior that follows chest pain, shortness of breath, obviously fever, cough, all those other things. But there are plenty of patients who have fever and cough and can stay home. But chest pain, shortness of breath, sort of change in behavior, vomiting, unable to keep things down. Tony, you could pick it up. Yeah, and I, and I think uh, going to the, the public with other symptoms, the people that are having, you know, anginal or uh, coronary artery disease symptoms or stroke-like symptoms or these uh, boulder-sized kidney stones, that the ER is a safe place to go. I mean, you're going to get evaluated. If you don't need to stay, we don't want to keep you either, but you can at least get management and treatment and better early than later. Don't wait. Don't push yourself into a corner at the 11th hour. And then we're expecting miracles to be able to maybe dig them out of a hole, or we might not be able to dig them out at all. So once they, they are recognizing any kind of serious signs and symptoms, I would urge people to, it is safe to go to the hospital. We do cohort uh, the COVID patients away from the general public to, to keep that distancing the, the best we can. But if it's a come in, get evaluated, abate maybe some of these symptoms to get it early before something uh, severe happens. Uh, we were able to do that. You give, that, give yourself that ability and us the ability to do that. At the same time, if you're not requiring anything further, we, we get you out of there and we mask everybody. We take our own precautions with cohorting, separating and masking just because of it's the right thing to do at this stage of this crisis and also the optics of it. I mean, as far as to keep people comfortable all the way around, our staff is masked, patients are masked. So if you come in with an ankle sprain, you're getting a mask. So again, it's, it's not a, as bad a place as everybody's perceiving. And I know part of it is following rules, staying at home unless you have these severe symptoms. And by no means is the government sanctioned saying, like, stay at home no matter what. If you still have any kind of concerning signs and symptoms of any kind of disease or disorder, I would urge people to seek help at a, a local emergency department. I, I, I get this asked this question just talking among friends and uh, just saying, why is Southeast Michigan or why is Michigan one of the hotbeds is there any rhyme or reason for a spread of a virus or how do, how does that happen and that might be an impossible question to ask because obviously i think michigan has the third most cases in the country and as far as death goes uh, you know one death's too many obviously but uh, you know it, it, it's quite significant as well 
That's a great question, Art, because Tony and I and uh, numerous of our colleagues have had this conversation. And um, given uh, the, the, the fact that there's nothing else I could do at home, I've spent a lot of time looking into all these various things. Um, Wayne, Oakland, and Macomb County com comprise 38% of the Michigan populace, but they comprise 83% of COVID deaths. Wow. Yep. Th those are the numbers. And so Macomb County, we have 868,000 uh, people, but we've had 373 deaths. Kent County, Grand Rapids, 680,000. So essentially 75% of the population of Macomb County, but instead of 373 deaths, they have 20. Wow. 20 for 680,000. We have 373 for 860,000. It is so disproportionate, and, and I don't have an answer for it. I really don't. I don't know if maybe the, the patients in Southeast Michigan are uh, have more health problems. I don't think there's any question. So, so Tony and I talked about what we were experiencing and, my, and our colleagues. So a month ago, as we started to see the influx of patients, um, there was no question that we said amongst ourselves, there seems to be a disproportionate number of African-American patients getting really sick with COVID. And, you know, two, three weeks later, this started to become a, a conversation. And, and it isn't that we're smarter than anybody, but we saw it every day. And so I'm not sure if the, the demographics of Southeast Michigan are driving us. I don't have an answer. I don't have a physiology for this. It's just an observation that, that, my observation, and most certainly the data, for some reason, African Americans are being hit more severely than than the rest of the population. Would you agree, Tony? Uh, Tony uh, dropped out here for a second, uh, oh. uh, 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 John. But uh, I, I I I'm going to try to reconnect with him. So let me ask you that. I mean. Um, I, I know, obviously, um, you know, I, I live in Livonia. I live in Wayne County. And uh, Tony, Tony, you're I'm back. back. I'm, okay. I'm back. <laughs> this, we're, we're trying out a new system here today, fans. And actually, I think it's working pretty well. Uh, but with that said, uh, John, why don't you repeat that? Ask Tony what, what, what you wanted to. And then I'm just I'm going to stay out of this as much as possible because obviously – and, and people might agree that they've listened to this podcast. I usually don't know what I'm talking about, but in this subject, I usually do not know what I certainly don't know what I'm talking about. So take it away, John and uh, Tony, you answer. Okay. Well, Tony, what I was just describing was the, the disproportionate number of cases. Did you hear me? I talk heard all about... the way. Yeah. I heard all the way about Kent County and yeah. And you don't so have a good one reason. of the things that, that I said that you and I and Heather and a bunch of our colleagues we noticed back in a month ago in mid-March that at our particular hospital, there seemed to be a disproportionate number of African-Americans who were being severely hit by this, meaning that, you know, of the 10 patients who came in, five of them that ended up going on ventilators were African-Americans. And we commented on that. Now it's obviously the, the data suggests that in Michigan, 40% of deaths are uh, African-American patients. I don't know why. Um, everyone has a, a speculation to this, uh, any number of things, multiple family households, access to health care. You know, we know that uh, African-American population has a higher uh, incidence of high blood pressure and heart yeah. disease, 
So I was just saying, you know, what were your thoughts? Yeah, and, and uh, I think the ones that, because I, I looked at most of those cases that came in, and some of them were, you know, young people. That's what was that caught everybody's eye. But they did suffer from high blood pressure and diabetes. Uh, the majority of them had some type of a comorbidity that put them at significant high risk, and especially the high blood pressure. And the high blood pressure is one of the, uh, was reported out early that it was actually more severe than like an immune compromise that you wouldn't think or somebody yeah. with asthma or CPD, yeah. that hypertension actually was one of the worst comorbidities that was deleterious to somebody handling this virus. And, and unquestionably, other respiratory viral illnesses like influenza, you know, of the 80,000 flu deaths in 2018, probably close to half of them, patients had some sort of respiratory issue. So this, the high blood pressure piece, is, is unique, at least for me in, in my practice. Well, yeah, yeah, but, you know, I'm listening to this, and I, I am kind of curious, because this is new, uh, a new virus, and we're, you know, we're probably learning things about it every day, and I know that there's people all over the world trying to come up with a vaccine right now. What can we do at home? Is there anything preventative that we can do to either ward it off or are we like in a boat where we're going to have to wait till there's a vaccine till we really kind of get this under control? I don't think that, and once again, there are so many people smarter than me talking on TV and doctors, <laughs> etc. But I mean, realistically and just intuitively art, mm -hmm. we, I don't think that the vaccine is going to be the answer next month or in September um, we've had previous viral pandemics that we have not had vaccines to, and either through you know the grace of God or something, we don't get these terrible sort of second waves. But there's not going to be a vaccine, at least I don't think there's going to be a vaccine in the next four months. And so getting people back to their daily lives, I think, is going to have to occur without a vaccine. Um, that's just my thought. That's one guy's opinion. And sometimes you hear, I do not represent the, this is not an opinion of the Henry Ford health system, but, um, I just don't think that's going to be the answer. Well, it then, it, 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 are, are we looking at a society then where, where we'll have to wear gloves or masks and maybe as the curve keeps going down and is completely flattened or close to being completely flattened, we'll be able to go back to a normal. I guess what I'm asking is there, it, you know, the, the term that I'm hearing all the time now is there's going to be a new normal, people, a new normal. And, and I, I know I'm asking you to be soothsayers here and, and you're, you're only human beings and you're highly educated men. And, and, you know, thank God for people like you because you're out there on the front lines and you're doing a hell of a job. I, you know, truly both of you, but I, I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, again, it, a new normal, do we have to start thinking differently in order to really um, ward off and fight this, uh, this pandemic? I, th I think we're going to, I think for sure, uh, the term new normal, I mean, there's a new normal every day. I mean, tomorrow's <laughs> going to be the new normal of today. So there's always going to be the new normal. But um, I think the good thing is as far as um, masks, there's going to be that transition that, you know, like I just asked a buddy, both uh, 
John and I, a good friend of ours, he's flying down to Florida tomorrow, and I asked him, I said, are you are you wearing a mask on the airplane in the airport? He goes, no. <laughs> he goes, he goes. I'm welcoming it so he can get, uh, get his antibodies going. And I said, well, what's the majority of the people in the airport? Well, the majority of the people in the airport are wearing masks, and they're wiping, and they're doing all that stuff. So remember the day when somebody wore a mask on the plane? They were the oddball out. Now if you don't wear a mask, you're the odd man out. And, yeah. and I think it's going to be that transition to say eventually the masks will go away eventually as we build up the immunity. We're going to have a second surge of some sort. I think we're going to have a little bump coming back as we as we mitigate this lockdown and get back to our days of everybody back to the workforce. There's going to be a resurgence of this virus somewhere. And I don't think it's it definitely I don't think it's going to be a peak like we had. It'll be a bump. We'll readdress, um, but I think we'll eventually get to a new norm, good, bad, indifferent, right or wrong. We're going to get to a, a new norm, but it'll, it'll be as close as we can uh, as things were six months ago. I, I, Art, I think that whatever the new norm is going to be is going to closely follow what the, the, the story is going to be at, from the government and from the media and how this is going to be framed. And the reason I say that, I know that uh, it, it's influenza is not COVID. Having said that, you know, Tony and I have done this for 30 years. And year after year after year, we see tens, you know, 50,000 people in 2018, 80,000 people died of influenza in this country. But I tell you, I never saw anybody wearing a mask. You know, we still had football games and the NCAA. So I think that medicine and people like, probably not Tony and I, it'll be the Fauci's of the world, will drive what the new norm is going to be. Um, but there's something unique about this that has driven this response. And as I said, you know, Two years ago, you know, Tony and I were getting clobbered in the ER, but nobody was wearing masks. People were dying. You know, more kids died with influenza, and yet we didn't have this response. So I, there, I don't think there's any way to predict. I, I personally can't say I think this is going to happen and that's going to happen because the response to this pandemic has been so unique that I think that trying to predict what's going to go on two months, six months, not from a disease standpoint, because I think Tony's right. There's going to be a bump. Maybe there's not. You know, we had we had the swine flu in 2009 that was pretty ugly, and we didn't get a second bump. But I think it's safe to assume there's going to be something. And there's no way there's no way I think you can predict just because this has been so unique. When when you look at this, and how does it do compare to other, uh, I guess, other diseases or other viruses? I I was reading something where. They said, well, you know, SARS was, I remember when SARS was around and then SARS just kind of went away. Uh, yes. <laughs> does COVID-19, will it go away or is this something that, you know, even though we're flattening the curve, it's still something serious that we have to be aware of? Yeah, I think with the with the SARS, they um, it had a much higher death rate, I believe 8,000 cases and 774 deaths. And they haven't had anything reported since with that one since, I believe, 2004. Um, but the difference was the risk of travelers' transmission was very low with that okay. SARS. 
and um, the compared to this, we have a uh, a lot of people walking around with mild or no symptoms. So the transmission of this is very large in comparison to the SARS. So to be able to identify uh, and isolate, once you've identified it, the tracing and isolating is what they really emphasize on this. That's where this COVID-19 is a little bit more challenging than the SARS. And, and go ahead, John. Oh, no, I, 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 I would agree. I mean, as I said, we've, we've, we've had novel viruses, certainly in my career, um, and they've all been different. Somewhat like Tony said, SARS came and went. We never heard from it. Um, same thing with the swine flu, but we've had other uh, pandemics that have typically shown a second bump. So um, I, I think that uh, from, a, from our standpoint, I think that, you know, as emergency physicians, we're going to continue to do what we do. And it's going to be the, the public body physicians who really are going to direct, you know, the, the future decisions that are made and the surveillance and the identification. And, and to the extent it'll be interesting to see for me and Tony, you know, we're seeing this downward tread, keep your fingers crossed, mm -hmm. you know, two months from now, two months from now, this thing is kind of dissipated. It's going to be interesting what our process and policy and how we're going to surveil people that come in the ED with a febrile respiratory illness. And if routinely we're going to be doing COVID tests, just like we used to, I, Tony, I don't think I've tested somebody for flu in six weeks, but we yeah. used to just test people routinely. And I wonder if the COVID testing is going to be similar to that. I, I can't imagine that it won't. I can't imagine that this, this summer, early, early fall, that we're going to be testing people for COVID in addition to in influenza. So, so our, to, to compare the COVID-19 and SARS again, 80% uh, of the COVID have mild symptoms or asymptomatic. And that's like I said, it's related to tracing and isolating, which helps control this. Uh, shedding the virus earlier is what's appeared to be with COVID-19, which makes it difficult to detect who has the virus and who you have to isolate. Spreading throughout the community is much more easily compared to SARS, which is ma were mainly identified with healthcare workers because it was a, it was usually the viral shedding was later in the disease, which people were more symptomatic with it, and then that's when they were with healthcare workers. And part of that is when you're feeling ill, either you were ill enough to get into the hospital and you're exposing the healthcare workers, or you were ill and you stayed at home and you didn't transmit it all over the place. So that was one of the big key things mm -hmm. with SARS. And also now currently today, we're more globally oriented compared to 2003 when SARS was around that we're, we're moving all over the globe now comparatively. So that's where the transmission and the control of this is a little more difficult than SARS was. When you look at this, how about, should we all be tested? I know we hear about testing every single day or kits that are available. Uh, is this something, are we at a stage where, where people should seek out being tested whether they feel badly or not? Yeah, the push is to get the dad, like John's saying, I think um, you could argue both sides of the fence, I, I feel, but I think to get the accurate data, because a couple of things that John and I have talked about, and we'll get to the second part, but the first part is like the flu. We have such a liberal testing of the flu. 
uh, you know, either for, you know, we could tell somebody, tap them on the show and say, you got the flu and that's the end of it. And we label them as the flu without a swab being done. Or some places or some clinicians liberally test for the flu and say, you have it, you don't have it. But what it does is that the denominator gets larger and it dilutes the, the death rate. But the amount of cases you have, like the flu a couple of years ago, is 45 million. So you're going to get this large number, wow. and you're going to have a, it's going to dilute your death rate number. Um, I think with this, be able to for tracing, isolate, and get a good handle of it. Do we need to open up and get more liberal with the testing? I feel early on it would be nice to understand where it is, who is who's actually carrying it, either infected, not infected, the people that they've been in contact. So to get a better handle on it, the more data you have, the better it is to get a handle on this new virus. Um, on the other end, I don't know if it's the right thing, like I think John was just really pulling up, where we there was, uh, well, like you hear it all over the news, New York's recorded 3,800 deaths in addition, but none of them have been tested, but they were marked as they're getting labeled and put into the COVID death area. And is that a good thing to do, the right thing to do? I'm not sure, I'm not a big, unless we know the definitive diagnosis of somebody's expiration, I'm, I'm not, I, don't, I don't know if that's helping us. I think broad testing definitely will help us understand this, locate it, trace it, and to be able to isolate it properly. I, I think that the, I think your question uh, and Tony answered it very well. The, the the gist of the question, though, is the idea that 350 million Americans right. are going to get a COVID test. Right. So obvi obviously, you know, even at the height of these crazy influenza years, you know, we still didn't test. We maybe tested 10, 15, 20 million people. But we just guesstimated based on demographics and epidemiology that 45, 42, 50 million people had the flu. So I, I'm glad I'm not in charge and I'm glad I'm just sitting at home today because I don't know how you could possibly test enough people to um, cover any significant percent of the population. And I know there's an issue with asymptomatic patients. And Obviously, it would be incredibly advantageous to be able to identify those people because in some sense, they're more of a, theoretically, if people are doing what they're supposed to do and, and staying home when they're sick, which influenza people don't do to begin with. So COVID right. people, I think, are a little bit, I think at this time, we're a little more sensitive to this. Um, so needless to say, testing patients who are symptomatic, we're not even doing that now, Art. So right. So someone drives up to our hospital and they have symptoms and Tony and I know they have COVID. So they, they, we send them home unless they are either a healthcare worker and we have to document it so they can't come back to the hospital for two weeks or they have uh, medical issues, meaning that they're sick enough that they have to be admitted to the hospital. But you know, on a daily basis, I know we see dozens and dozens of patients just in our ER who we don't test just because we do not have the testing capacity. Now, having said that, it has improved. And I think Tony uh, and I have been talking about how we're gonna expand testing, but I don't know how you get to where everyone's tested. But once again, this is the new norm. And like I said before, I don't know how you're gonna predict 
how many people we're going to test. I've heard these discussions about, you know, increasing the number of available tests for a particular lab by 100,000 a week. I just don't know how that translates into 350 million people. You know, I'm I'm sitting here and I'm thinking that eventually, um, you know, we're going to open up, whether it's slowly or not, society's going to start getting back to a norm. Have we reached a point where everybody, all 350 million Americans at this point, have to have some sort of accountability, not only to themselves, but to society as a whole, where if you're, and have we reached this point where we have been bombarded with so much information and stuff and, uh, you know, Dr. Uh, Bauer and Dr. Colucci, both of you have given us what the Simpsons are, what we should do, that we're at a point where hospitals know what COVID-19 is, know how to treat it, know what the symptoms are, that if we feel bad, we should just go to the hospital and, and get tested and that's probably how it's all going to turn out. We're going to open up again in some capacity, slowly but surely, and that if I'm driving around and I'm driving down to, to uh, Little Caesars to cover a Red Wing practice and I'm thinking to myself, geez, boy, you know, I, I, I definitely might, I got a little bit of a chest pain. I, I've got a shortness of breath. And instead of... Uh, you know, turning down and going to, you know, Little Caesars, I go to Receiving Hospital or something, or Henry Ford or or the emergency. I mean, do, do, do we, I guess, as a society have to become aware, and I know it's a long and rambling question, but that, you know, we have to take some of it upon ourselves just as people to know what we're doing, because it sounds like from your end, you fellas exactly know what you're doing and are prepared to handle it. I know that's a lot to digest. I know I've been kind of rambled there. <laughs> Do you want to go ahead, Tony? You take the first stab at it. Um, as far as getting back to, you mean as far as responsibility as the community? Well, well, right. I, I, I guess what I'm really trying to say in a nutshell is this, is that um, when everything opens up, people, are, you know, I, I think we're all getting educated to a point now where, once we open up and we're not feeling well, we should just go to the doctor. We should go to the hospital. I, you know, I have a buddy of mine, a dear friend of mine, who hasn't gone to the doctor in like 30 years. You know, I get a physical every year, you know, whether I want right. to or not. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I think if we reached a point now where should we just say, listen, guys, once we open up, doesn't mean, first of all, that it's that it, until there is a vaccine, there, this is still an issue. But take it upon yourself not only for your own well-being, but for the well-being of all of us, to you're not doing well, go see a doctor. Yeah, it would be the same answer, and I think the same um, instructions we'd give anybody prior to this. If you had flu-like symptoms, I mean, the the difference between the don't I mean, what we can't forget is ninety plus percent of the people that get COVID are mild symptoms, mild to no symptoms. It's eighty percent, but the 90% do okay with this. They might have a dip, they might feel horrible, be the worst flu like symptoms they have and come out of it. We can't forget that the majority of the people that get COVID do okay with this. And the ones that do get hit, there's a severity to it on a small percentage. And then there's that death rate that's just right now, I think it's a little higher than the flu because of our testing methods and the, the amount that we haven't 
been able to test and just you can only think of I think Stanford came about with a, the study that brought it down right around the flu like death rate but I think moving forward it would be the same instructions that we gave everybody else if you don't feel well you have concerns by all means seek professional help uh, medically and if it's through the ER if it's through your primary care physician don't sit on it don't let the fear monger take control do the appropriate thing. What you're doing on your annual physicals art is the appropriate thing. Not seeing a doctor for 30 years, as we all know, is not probably a great, a great no. decision. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I was going to say that um, this would be a great sociology study because, generally speaking, <laughs> human nature is such that as soon as the idea that we are at the risk of immediate death dissipates, so does our vigilance. So my, my point is, Tony and I, we work in an emergency department and maybe we have a skewed population, but the number, and, and once again, I'm an American, so I'm not disparaging anybody, but the reality is human nature is human nature and diabetics who don't manage the sugar hypertensives who don't manage their blood pressure and use salt and yada yada people that smoke and drink alcohol as 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 a people as a as a world population we tend to sort of become less vigilant about things like our health because we don't see an immediate risk so if this virus somehow was able to do that, it would be like some sort of miracle. And we'll see. The, the attention that this has received, once again, in my career, unprecedented. So maybe it's going to impact people. Art, time will tell. Like I said, it'll be, it'll be a great sociology study to see what sort of impact this has on the behavior of people. Well, yeah, I look at it, and, you know, I, I think and when you said human nature, John, I immediately thought false sense of security. We all get this false sense of security that, okay, it's done, it's over with, I'm able to go to work, I'm able to go to a restaurant, I can go to a movie, but, but, but. I, I would I'm under the assumption and, you know, and maybe I, you know, I'm, I'm the eternal optimist, I guess, that I think that this is going to change. Maybe I hope maybe the way people think in that uh, instead of like my buddy ignoring going to a doctor for 30 years, that perhaps maybe you should reexamine maybe your priorities a little bit and and put being aware of your body, being in tune with uh, what's good for you, what's healthy is something that maybe we should all kind of re-examine in our daily lives. I can't believe I'm being all philosophical here with two doctors, but... <laughs> but, but it's but, contagious. But, it's contagious. Yeah. See, definitely. I, I, I think I might uh, enter med school now. No, you guys have, ins <laughs> you guys have inspired me. But yeah, I, I, I think there has to be some sort of shift in the way we think as a whole, but maybe I'm wrong because, John, I think you just said it. A sociological study study on this, or when historians look back on this, I think this is going to be a fascinating time in history that we are living through right now. And, and when historians study it, I think that there's going to be a lot of uh, New York Times bestsellers written about this pandemic, this era that we're living through right now. Uh, I'm going to write one of them. Tony will tell you that I have been, I have been talking about this since really the second week of March. And you know, I, all of our discussions today, I've avoided politics and everything else, which mm -hmm. I continue to do. 
But uh, there's no question that this has been unique. And Tony and I could give you story after story after story about the patient who lifelong smoker has a heart attack, gets a procedure and they come in and they're still smoking. The, the diabetic who loses their foot, but doesn't manage their blood pressure and is still, you know, eating chocolate and has a sugar of 350. So it's just, it's, it's human nature. It's, it's tough to overcome that inertia. So this, it'll be interesting, you know, six months from now, 12 months from now to see where we're at. Yeah, I think it will be fascinating. I know I, I really want to, I, I can jump all over. I've kept you guys a long time. I know that you're, you're not working today, but I, I just want to kind of, uh, 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 and obviously, uh, uh, Tony, with what you do with the Red Wings, obviously being the head team physician here, uh, we're all concerned about when, what are sports going to look like? You know, I had Kevin, <laughs> I, I had, I had Kevin, I had Kevin Allen on a uh, fine, uh, uh, former writer for USA Today, uh, in the Hockey Hall of Fame, hockey writer, a good, good Detroit area guy, uh, saying that he's wondering that two things. First of all, because of the economic impact, will people have the money to actually go to live sporting events? And two, will they want to go into an arena of 20,000 people where we're all kind of stuck in there? And and I know the leagues are really trying to figure it out and gradual, no fans, no all that. Uh, You know, Tony, I'll throw it to you first. And then, you know, obviously, John, I want you to comment, too. Where are we headed? Are, are, uh, will professional sports not be professional sports or sporting events in general, colleges, everything, until we get a vaccine where people will actually feel comfortable to congregate in that large of a group? Well, I think, I think the, the Fauci's, Dr. Fauci and his colleagues will govern what is out there uh, nationally and the you know, guidelines to follow. Um, and I, I was just on a call the other day and with the league, with the, the group that I, medical standards group, but part of it was like just kibitzing back and forth. You know, how do they, how do they implement? Do they start off as an empty arena? Then you go to spacing them out, sell so many tickets for two or three people apart and you only so many got to be, and then gradually get into it. I think we're eventually going to get back to business as usual. Uh, I think there's a lot of, uh, hardy sports fans like John and myself. And I, <laughs> I humbly say myself, John's a huge sports fan. Um, and I think to be you know missing out on March Madness, the Masters Tournament, all these exciting, incredible events, just look at, I mean, just look how people behave. You talk about a sociology uh, evaluation. You look at people's behavior that they'll scrape every dime and penny to get those season tickets. I don't think this is going to stop people in the long run to going to sporting events. So, so Art, I feel like I'm walking across a desert because there are no sports. Um, <laughs> you know, sports have been my life since I was a young person, always active. I have six kids. All of them played multiple high school sports. All we talk about are politics and sports. And um, it's been a tough time. Let me say that. And I know I say that tongue in cheek because obviously this disease is real. It's caused horrific things for a number of people, but in the levity of this conversation and talking about sports, it's sports are so integral to our society. It just, it's just so integral. The the most famous people in our society tend to be Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods and LeBron James. Right. 
So right. having said that, um, I do think that the psyche, the psyche surrounding this illness is different than anything else. And we can all, t- we can all question why and ask why, but um, I think it's going to be slow to come back because I think that the psyche is such people are concerned. Now, personally, I'm around 10, 12 COVID patients. I'm in their face every single day. Open up Comerica. I'll be down there without a mask tomorrow. <laughs> so, <laughs> Having said that, it's going to be slow to come back. And I do think there's going to be a financial piece. I mean, our, our response to this pandemic, good, bad, or indifferent, the reality is it has destroyed the economy. And it is probably destroying some people's lives and livelihoods. Mm -hmm. And so that was a great point you made, Art, that um, people are not going to have necessarily the money to get right back into sports. And I doubt that there are going to be, you you never know, I doubt that there are going to be 40,000 people who are regularly going to want to go down and sit right next to somebody. Whether that's rational or irrational, I think it's going to be slow to come back. Well, you look at Michigan Stadium. I mean, that has uh, you know, when people are watching uh, uh, Michigan play football, uh, there's more people in there than most cities in Michigan. <laughs> you know, it, it concentrated over 100,000 people. And I've been there, obviously, many, many times. And I, I am just wondering that. And I guess it's, again, and John, this should probably be part of your book when you're writing it, is how, <laughs> how, how people embrace sports and activity. Because I think you can see, and I know it just from what I do with the Wings, that you know people are just chomping at the bit, as you said, for anything. All the games that they're showing and replays and we're live streaming games and uh, we're, we're doing all kinds of things just to, so people can get that fix. Yeah, it, Art, so it, like I said, I think it's, it's, a, it's an issue of the American psyche. Um, right. When Michigan plays Ohio State and there are 110,000 people in that stadium, generally speaking, by the end of November, flu season's up and running, and people unknowingly are exposing themselves and others, but it never really bothered anybody before. Right. Know, it, was just, it was sort of out of sight, out of mind. X number of acceptable deaths. It's just a part of the risk that we take every day, like when we get in our car. But this is the, the psyche of America with this is different. So I think, and I think you're going to see, I, I agree. Oh, sorry, John. No, that's okay. I'm done. I, I, I was going to say, I think John's right with, and that's why I say, I mean, eventually it's going to get back to the norm, but I think the transition is going to be slow. I think the outdoor sports and activities will come to, normalcy quicker than obviously being enclosed in a stadium uh, or an arena where you got a roof and walls and there's nowhere for the air to go and they'll be people will be obviously a little skeptical of going there versus like you said at Michigan or an outdoor venue where wind is blowing uh, and they feel like they are somewhat what protected being out in the, the natural air and environment and and one one last factor here is that um, in our society, it, it, once again, there is a, a risk that some people are willing to take individually. I would suggest that corporations and businesses are probably going to be less likely to take that risk. You know, someone goes to a game 
and gets exposed, you know, what's the liability of the, the team or the facility? So I think that's going to be factored in too. I, I definitely do. Oh, I, I agree with that. I, I, I think that you're going to have to really think long and hard and, uh, uh, I, I'm sure doctors will be consulted, but I'm sure a whole team of lawyers is going to be behind this as well about how how different businesses are going to roll themselves out and what their liability could be. That's another that'll have to be for another show. Um, at this point, I, I really do want to wrap it up. And, but but I want to ask both of you for the people that are listening uh, to the Red and White Authority today to this podcast. And, you know, once it's out there, it'll be available for for a long, long time. Um, uh, I, I, I'm just curious, what can you, first of all, are both of you doing well? Um, do you have the supplies? Do you have ev- any, everything you need? Are, 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 are the, is the staff being well fed? You have gloves, you have masks. Uh, it sounds like you have enough ventilators. Uh, what's that situation like? How are you two hol- hol- holding up? And, uh, uh, and maybe then some advice that, just follow the social distancing rules. Be smart about it. When things start to ease up, you, you know, just start to uh, acclimate yourself back into whatever. Again, I hate this term, but I'm going to use it again. The new normal is. Yeah, I, yeah. I'll, I'll, go, I'll let to, I'll let Tony finish since he's uh, okay. He's the Red Wings expert. Uh, first of all, personally, my my family and I. I've actually had several members of my family. My children have the COVID actually one of them wow. positive, but other ones had classic symptoms, fever, chills, cough, lost their taste and smell. I'm, I'm guesstimating that uh, four of my six kids have already had it. So we're all doing well. We are doing very well in the ED from the standpoint of, of uh, supplies and support. Uh, we need more patients. So if you're listening, come on into the ER. Um, <laughs> and as far as what people should do, I would suggest that vigilance amongst the most susceptible has to remain, regardless of, you know, Texas is probably going to open up things on Monday. Having said that, they're going to suggest like they should. If you're over the age, I'd say over the age of 60, if you have high blood pressure, if you have heart disease, take steps. Get yourself an N95 mask because regular masks a regular mask, a surgical mask, prevents me from getting you sick. But a surgical mask doesn't prevent you from getting sick from me. So having some sort of protection if you're going to be out and about to, you know, to pr- protect yourself. And if you're sick, do everything they've told you to do. If you're fever, cough, congestion, but, but doing okay, isolate yourself. If you have chest pain, if you have shortness of breath, if you're lethargic, seek medical care. And then lastly, my advice is the hospitals are safe. Don't ignore other life-threatening symptoms for fear of COVID. That's it. Wow. Tony? And I, yeah, and I, 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 again, I reiterate, John, and overlapping them, that basically the supplies are good, ventilators are good. The, the, I just, while we're on this call, I just get a text from one of our colleagues and somebody who was never encouraged to go to the ED and either um, mitigated their process or, or thought process to come to the ER for certain care because they're afraid that they thought, they thought, the patient said, I thought the ERs were just for COVID patients. 
So again, we got to dispel this, this myth and this fallacy that this is just for COVID patients. This is for patients that need medical attention and don't ignore, don't be foolish and ignore serious signs and symptoms. If it's an extremity injury to a stroke like symptoms, cardiac symptoms, get yourself to the ED. It is safe. We've supplied, like John said, we supply people with the appropriate masks. We cohort the appropriate people that we feel are infectious or contagious, as we always have, uh, and take care of those walking wounded or some with other serious signs and symptoms over in another area of the department. But do not ignore these signs and symptoms to come to the hospital. It is safe, as it always has. We cohort the contagious and infectious in a certain area, as we always have. Nothing has changed on our point. It is not just for COVID. And the amount of COVID patients that coming in anyways has dropped anyways. So for any people, I want to dispel that as well to say that it's even more safe than it was weeks ago. But we've always done that. We've had all through pandemics and epidemics and infectious process that we cohort those people and take our due diligence with masking and quarantine them in a department so they don't get staff sick and they don't get other patients sick. So we do our due diligence, but please don't don't ignore those things. But as far as food supplies, the, the, uh, the I think the, in a behavioral aspect, the mood of the staff, I think, is better than it's been. Um, so we're on the upswings uh, medically. Um, uh, everything seems to be taking in the positive direction, but we just need to urge. Like I said, it's just kind of coincidental that I just get a text during this about somebody that didn't come. Now they have a situation where they dug a hole, they put themselves in a the corner, and we don't know if we can reverse what has happened because they delayed seeking care. Wow. So again, the urge is make sure you get in ASAP. Well, well, you know, I on that note, we sure, certainly wish that uh, that individual well and be in our thoughts and prayers. Uh, I, you know, t- Tony, I, I don't want to really make light of it, but we're not we're not at a point where we're going to see the Red Wings wear masks or anything while they're playing. <laughs> you know how long it took me to get face shields on everybody. I don't think we're going to be seeing. <laughs> well, Dr. John Bauer, Dr. Anthony Colucci, both of you gentlemen. First of all, thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything you're doing. You're in the front lines. You, all your co-workers, all healthcare professionals. You know, certainly, I I, I have a, a a new appreciation for the medical. Uh, a profession in what you do and certainly first responders, just society as a whole. But I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day uh, to be on the Red and White Authority to, uh, uh, you know, letting us know exactly what's going on and, and giving us a better indication of what uh, you've been through, uh, where we may, um, what we may have to do in the future. But uh, I truly appreciate it. Thank you very, very much. Thanks, Art. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Art. Thanks for having us on.